Have you ever found yourself um, watching a movie and sympathizing with the wrong character? We watched uh, Treasure Island a couple weeks ago. And I found myself sympathizing with uh, Long John Silver. And i thinking, like, that doesn't seem quite right. And he's a pirate and everything else. And, and, and it's one thing what happens with the movie, no big deal. But, but sometimes, if you're not careful, it can happen with the story that Jesus tells. In Matthew chapter 20, if you want to come over there, Matthew chapter 20, <clears throat> in verses 1 to 15, Jesus tells this interesting story um, that if you ever used it as a model for employee, employer, employee relationships in our day, you'd find yourself standing before one of the labor boards. You'd be in trouble, right? Remember, there's a landowner, it's harvest season, so he, not at all unusual, you, you will go down and you'll just get some day laborers, people just to work for the day, you'll pay them for the day for the harvest, and then what they do the next day doesn't matter. So Matthew chapter 20, Jesus gives this parable, and there's this landowner, and uh, at 6 o'clock in the morning, they're going to work from till 6 o'clock at night, he takes talks to some guys and says, look, you work all day, I'll pay you a denarius. And that, that's, that's fair. It's, that's, that's what you pay. No big deal. Um, Nine o'clock in the morning, hires some guys and says, I'll take care of you. Twelve o'clock, three o'clock. And five o'clock, with one hour left, he brings in a guy and says, um, go out there and work. And after he's done working, he comes back in and... Um, they're all lining up to get paid, and he starts with the guy that's only worked one hour. Remember this? And he pays him a whole denarius. Now, how are you thinking? And you're thinking to yourself, hey, I worked all day. One times 12. I mean, I'm going to get myself 12 denarii for this thing. This is going to be a great deal. And remember, what does he end up getting paid by this landowner? The landowner stands before him, and he gives him one denarius too. And the guy's irate. Would you be? I mean, it's not fair, is it? I mean, come on. He works one hour, gets a denarius. I work 12 in the scorching sun. That's what he says. And I get 12. And we're supposed to be sympathizing with the landowner. If you're not very careful when you read this text, you find yourself sympathizing with the wrong guy. So, to get perspective, we better go back and look at the context. Because I think you're going to find at the end of the day, and once again, folks, it's very, very important when you, when you deal with Matthew 20, this is never to be considered as a model for how business is supposed to work. Okay? You do realize that. Right? That's not why it's given. It's teaching us a spiritual lesson. And in the spiritual realm, it doesn't work like business, does it? So let's go back, kind of get our feet wet in the context. See what's happening here. Um, in, uh, in verse 16, that this story actually begins. It begins with a rich young ruler coming to Jesus. The text says, and Behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Here's a question. From his perspective then, goodness all revolves around what I do. Right? 
So it's about the good that I do, and if I do enough good, obtain eternal life. Right? That's his question. Look at Jesus' response. And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter in, into your life, keep the commandments. So he says, you think it's all about you and what you do and the goodness you do. But in reality, it's all about God who is good and the goodness he does. But if you want to play that game, you need to keep the commandments perfectly. Right? So Jesus says, you want to play that game? Here it is. Keep the commandments. And he said to him, well, which one should I do? And Jesus quotes from Exodus 20, from the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Jesus, there's, remember, there's four commandments that deal with our relationship with God and six commandments that deal with our relationship with one another. Jesus mentions five of the six commandments that deal with our relationship with one another. And interestingly enough, you know the one he left out, leaves out? Don't covet. Jesus just drops that one out. And he doesn't talk at all about our love and worship of God. He just deals with these other five. So Jesus throws these at the fella and adds Leviticus 19 to it too. You know, you shall steal, commit adultery, bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself, Leviticus 19. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Which is kind of interesting because from this guy's perspective, he can do it. Have you ever met people who thought that they could do it? And yet there's something in his soul that says, what am I lacking? I, I, I've got that one down. Or so he thought. And Jesus has this fascinating way of talking about that sixth commandment and talking about his relationship with God by what he says next. Notice what he says. Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, if you really want to know what it all entails, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved for he was one who owed much, owned much property. So Jesus says, well, you know what it means to be one of my children? It means to center your life around me. And so rather than being consumed with covetousness and everything about you and what you own, turn from that loyalty and just follow me. Easy enough. And it, so at the end of the day, it's not about all these things you do. It's simply upon who you know. It's Jesus. And for the first time in his life, he realized, not only can I do it, I don't want to do it. I would rather try to do it on my own and harbor love for things than to come to Christ. And he leaves. <laughs> and the disciples are watching all this. And, and frankly, what's so interesting, and in Matthew 18, 19, and 20, there's a whole series of stories that Jesus has encounters with different people. And virtually every time when the disciples talk, they get it wrong. <laughs> I mean, there's something in their thinking that's not quite right. Look at what they say. 
So they're watching this whole thing. And what they don't do is they're not going to turn around and say, well, praise the Lord. Jesus says this in verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't sow. But I know one thing. The eye of a needle is pretty small. What's the possibility of me jamming a camel through that thing? I mean, really. What is Jesus saying? This guy was all about what can I do? And you know what Jesus says? If it's all about what you do, it is impossible for you. Disciples hear this whole thing. (laughs) And verse 25, and when the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, well, then who can be saved? Now, why were they saying that? Well, for a lot of Jews living in antiquity, if you were rich, that means you were blessed. And if you're blessed, you're blessed by God. And if you're blessed by God, he approves of you and you're okay. So they look at this rich guy and they say, well, man, he's rich and got things and blessed of God. He's got to be in. And so they say, well, if that kind of guy who's blessed isn't in, then, then who can be saved? And Jesus has them right where he wants them. And look at what he says. And looking upon them, verse 26, Jesus said to them, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Christian, haven't you found that on your own experience? Perhaps before you knew Christ, it was all about how much can I do? I'll do more. I'll do this. I'll do this. And there's this aching in the soul that says, but there's still more I have to do. And at some point in your life, you realize it's not about your goodness. It's about God doing the impossible. Isn't it? And God coming into your life, convicting your heart through His Spirit, And you begin to say, I I just, I want to be a follower of Christ. I want to find forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That's what I want. And God does the impossible. Right? So Peter's listening to all this stuff. You got to love Peter. I I love Peter because whenever he speaks, he pretty much always has it wrong. But he says stuff that we think. And that's why I really like him. I just, I, I love it. And we're getting to chapter 20. Okay, I'm just trying to give you the context here. Verse 27. So Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Now, we're not much, but you know, we didn't have much to start with, but we're following you, Jesus. Okay, that's good. Good. What then will there be for us? I like, what's, what's the payoff? <laughs> you know? Far more than you could possibly imagine, Peter. Look what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, that you who have followed me, that's it. It's not about what you do, it's who you know. That's what counts. But you who have followed me. In the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now folks, Who in the world would want to give judging the 12 tribes of Israel over to that bunch of guys? I mean, really? 
You see what I'm saying? I mean, it's like, it's way over the top. It's not even in the ballpark of consideration. Unless you're a gracious God. But all of us are included that know Christ as Lord and Savior. Look at verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my name's sake. People who have said, look, I want to follow Christ. But in the process, they have family members that say, then don't have anything to do with us. And they have places of employment that say, it's going to affect you. But you know, you say, it's all about Jesus. He's worked in my heart. That's what I want. This person shall receive many times as much. Mark says in his account, a hundredfold. And shall hurt eternal life. So he says, Peter, this is not a tit for tat. This is not you doing your little deal and I'll kind of. This is about a God who is far more gracious than you could possibly imagine. You've come to faith in Christ. Perhaps you've had family members that have kind of held you at a distance. You come into a local body of believers with hundreds of people that love you. Who gives us that gift? I mean, it's God's gift. And you live through life and God walks with you and protects you and watches over you and gives you believers that hold you accountable, encourage you and challenge you. It gives you so much more. And then we die and for all eternity, we bask in his glory. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 2. We know Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Great verse. For by grace you say through faith. But verse 7, he says, you know what? In eternity... God is just going to continue to unfold how incredibly gracious he is to you. So for the ages to come, we will just keep marveling. As much as we marvel in his grace now, it doesn't compare to how much we're going to marvel in eternity. I mean, we're going to go there and go, you have got to be kidding me. I didn't pick that one up on earth. Do do, do you see? And so, so these guys leave a couple fishing nets And they get God in all eternity. Which brings me to the parable. It's an interesting parable because notice the front end and the back end of the parable. He gives this kind of cryptic statement, which really is his point of the parable in verse 30 of chapter 19. And again in reverse order in chapter 20, verse 16. Look at what he says in verse 30. Now, many who are first will be last... And the last will be first. What's that mean? I mean, there, are, there are some guys that, when I've, when I've read them, it seems to me what they're trying to say is something like this. The playing field is evened out, so everybody gets the same thing. You know, the first will be last, the last will be first. They're all in the same playing field. But when you look at this expression through the New Testament, it doesn't mean that. It means the people you think are in are out. And the people you think are out are in. It's a reversal. It's not this. It's this. Do do you see? And what he's saying here is this, Peter. 
Peter, you're talking about all this stuff about following me and what are you going to get? It's all true. I'm really incredibly gracious. It's all true, all true. But Peter, what I want you to know more than anything else is you need to remember people the world think are in. A rich, young ruler who has a perfect pedigree, wealthy, got his act together, attends synagogue, does all the stuff. The people you think are in, the first, are actually out. And the people you think are out, the sinners, the tax collectors, the fishermen, all those commoners, because they follow Christ, are in. And so what we need to analyze in the parable is the attitude that this first guy has in the situation that the last guy, guys have. Does, does that make sense? Because he goes through the parable, look at verse 16 of chapter 20. Thus, in conclusion, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So he says it twice. That's a little bit cryptic. But nonetheless, he gives the point up front and at the back end. So now let's look at the parable. Not as a model for business practices today. Good grief, no. But as a glimpse into the incredible grace of God. Okay? Listen to what he says. Verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Very common. Nothing, nothing unusual about any of that. When he agreed with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into the vineyard. So these are the guys. They started working at 6 o'clock in the morning. And, and, and for them, their relationship with this landowner is all about contracting. I do this, you do that. That's kind of how it works. Okay, all right. fair enough. And the landowner went out, verse 3, about the third hour, which would be 9 o'clock in the morning, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you too go into the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Then he went out about the sixth hour, noon, and the ninth hour, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and did the same. And these guys are, frankly, in the parables, just kind of fillers, okay, in all fairness. They don't, they're not terribly significant, except that they, they work some. But notice this in verse 6. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? Now, I want you to think about that for a second. If you're one of the guys, you've been there all day. Zedekiah and Jeremiah, all those guys were hired. Another batch was hired. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and, and unbelievable, a couple more were hired. The day is almost over. What is your chances of working? You got it. It's, it's virtually zilch. So, but they don't know what else to do, so they just, they're just standing around. I mean, what, did you go home? Well, it's not quite 6. It's 5. And the landowner shows up. He says, why are you guys here? Man, one level you could say, well, why do you think we're here? But, 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 but um, why, why are you staying around idle? They said to him, because no one hired us. And, and what you hear in their voice is hopelessness. Don't you? Why are we here? Nobody hired us. Can't get a job. And now it's late. 
Here we are. And notice what happens. He said to them, you too go into the vineyard. Really? Now, at this point, they're probably thinking, I don't know what we'll get paid for an hour. The lepto or something. Something much less than a denarius. I mean, nothing. Just peanuts. But at least I can go home and tell my wife tonight I did something. I mean, I don't know what they're thinking exactly. But, but that mere act in itself was incredibly uh, encouraging to them. Verse 8. When evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, folks, this is a major shocker when you're reading this story for the first time. Each one received a denarius. So they're standing in line and they're walking, I don't know, we're going to get you, but whatever, you know, they walk up. Here's your denarius. A denarius? I mean, like, like, we worked one out. I don't know. I wouldn't say too much. I'd just stick it in my pocket and go. But, but I'm not going to say, did you make a mistake or anything? They, they take it. And, of course, everybody else is standing around. And it's very interesting that he starts with the last and not the first. Because the landowner wouldn't have gotten himself in trouble if he would have done it the other way. Right? He could have started with the guys that worked 12 hours and gave them a denarius and they're out of there before they don't know what these other guys get. I mean, if, he would, if the landowner would have checked with me, I would have said, look, do those guys first. But he's trying to make a point. So he starts with those guys. But the guys that worked 12 hours watching this and saying, this is going to be great. I mean, I, wow, and they're, they're, they're calculating 12 times and all that stuff. Look at verse 9, uh, 10. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, and they also received each one a denarius. So they got up. A... When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to, said to one of them, friend. It's interesting, the term friend occurs three times in Matthew's gospel. And it's always addressed to somebody who at the end of the day is lost. Always. It's a kind statement to one who at the end of the day is not a follower of Christ. So within the parable, he said to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go away. You're out, pal. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? I own this stuff, you know. Or is your eye, and my translation says envious, it's literally the word in the Greek, is my eye evil? 
And it's used one other time earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 6, where he says, you either got to serve God or mammon. And there's some people, because their eye is evil, it shows that there's darkness in their soul because life is all about them. It's not about God. Is your eye evil? Because I am, and in my translation, I have the word generous, but you know what the word literally is in the Greek? Because I am good. Same word used back in chapter 19 when the guy said, hey, what good thing shall I do to eternal life? And Jesus said, look, the only thing that matters is God because He is the one who is good. And then you have a parable where the good God is doing good to people. Do you see? And so this man indicts the landowner and the landowner comes back and says, you were all about tit for tat and I gave you tit for tat. I own this place. You have an evil heart that only cares about yourself. I am a gracious landowner and I can do as I please. And all of a sudden, what you find the passage doing is it is exposing the heart of a self-righteous man like the rich young ruler. Because you know what self-righteous people do? They're all about contracts with God and comparisons with others. Aren't they? That's how it works. I've done enough in my contract with God so he will pay me what I... Some people live their life that way. And what they do is they look out at others and they say, I'm better than him and I'm better than her and I'm better than him. I'm better than him. I'm better than him. And, and it's all, it makes me feel really good because I'm better than them. And it's all about comparing. And that's what this guy does. He comes before the landowner and says, hey man, contracts. And hey, I'm better than them. And blah. That's how he lives his life. He runs through the parable, he finishes, and he says, you know what? Those people that are into contracts and comparisons, they're out. Those individuals who are hopeless and helpless, 11th hour laborers who have given up all hope, they're in. And they're in with blessings that they could not possibly imagine because the landowner is good. Isn't that how our salvation works? You and I get the point in our life where we say there's no hope for me. I can't be like that person. I'm just out. I, I just, I'm, I'm standing here idle. There's nothing. And the God who does the impossible comes into our life, convicts us by His Spirit, we trust Him, become a follower of His, and nothing's the same after that. Isn't that true? If you know Jesus Christ, you're nothing but an 11th hour laborer. That's it. That's all we are. I thought about this. By this point, when Jesus tells the parable, the, um, the rich young ruler is gone. So, why does He teach this to the disciples. So that they will come away with this deep understanding my life is all about grace. It's all about what He has given me. And you know, I was thinking about that. If that's the case, it changes everything in our life, doesn't it? 
It changes how we see sacrifice. I don't know if you're like me. But there's times in my life where I think God got a pretty good deal when he got me. I don't want to admit that to anybody. But I think, look, I do these things for him. Hey, I was over in China teaching these guys covertly. Come on, God. You are a boy, you are blessed at you. Know? you know what I mean? I mean, no, I mean, I don't verbalize it and say it and so forth, but you know, it's easy to kind of slip into some of those kinds of things. Oh, I've given so much, I've sacrificed so much. But you know, when you think about the fact that he has graced us by giving us his son, and all we do is we trust him and become his follower. That's it. That's it, right? I mean, that's it. And he heaps upon us all kinds of blessings in this life and in the life to come. How can I ever stand back and say, boy, God, I've done a lot for you. You, you kind of owe me. I've sacrificed. Sacrifice is a privilege, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, that's really all it is. Let me read to you something that David Livingston said as he was returning to Africa in December of 1857. And I, I read this and I say to myself, he's, he's spot on when he says this. Listen to what he says. Livingston says, I personally have never ceased to rejoice that God has entrusted me with his service. People talk a lot about the sacrifice involved in devoting my life to Africa. But can this be called a sacrifice at all? If we give back to God a little of what we owe him? And we owe him so much that we shall never be able to pay off that debt. Can, can that be called sacrifice which gives us the deepest satisfaction? Which develops our best powers? And gives us the greatest hopes and expectations? <coughs> Away with this word. It is anything but sacrifice. Rather, call it a privilege. It changes everything, doesn't it, folks? You know, you read through the book of 2 Corinthians, and there more than anywhere else in the New Testament for Paul, he unpacks all of the difficulties he goes through. Beaten, and knocked down and depressed and just one thing after another. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And of all people, he could stand up and say, man, I've sacrificed so hard. God really owes me. But you know what he says in 2 Corinthians 4? <laughs> he looks at all that stuff and he says, this momentary light affliction cannot be compared with the glories that are ours. Isn't that amazing? I, I mean, like, hello, Paul, what are you, schizo or something? What's up, man? All the stuff you go through, momentary light? In comparison. In comparison. The folks, the more we realize that we are a blessed, graced people, God of the universe has done the impossible in our lives. And he's given us so much more than we deserve or could possibly expect. How can we do anything else but sacrifice for him? Find the other place that really challenges me. My, uh, 
There's certain words you have to teach your children when they're growing up or phrases. I never had to get together with my children and say, kids, I'm teaching you a new sentence today. It's called, it's not fair. Now, I know you've never experienced anything like this, but I want you to know that life is this. Did you ever have to explain that to your kids? My kids like learned that out of the womb. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just part of them. It's not fair. So I give one gift. They, they, they do a comparison between the other siblings and it's not fair. And they're like, wow. Isn't it endemic to us as humans? We were just given over to that. And, 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 and it's so easy for us who are graced followers of Christ. If we're not careful, I think one of the reasons this parable is given here where it is, he's saying, this is who you are. You are people who are graced. But be very careful that, that you don't smack with those kinds of people. The self-righteous. Because the self-righteous are all about comparing themselves to others. When I was in college, I couldn't afford to go back to school. I prayed that the Lord would give me a thousand bucks. Which at that point was a lot of money now. You have to pray for a lot more than that. But um, um, somebody else was praying too. He got a thousand, I didn't. He stayed, I had to go home and work for a semester. Does God love him more? But see, it's so easy for me in that situation to kind of slip in and say, well, man, bummer. I mean, like, come on, God, I've done this and you've done that for him. And I, you know, you, isn't it true? You can just get involved in all this. And you folks, at the end of the day, we don't want to compare ourselves to what God is doing in other people's lives. We just don't want to do it. I don't understand his ways all the time. That's true. You don't understand his ways. But this tit for tat thing, forget it. We are all graced. And if he chooses to allow things to happen in my life that he doesn't choose to have in somebody else's life, I, it's a mystery that I can't figure out till glory. I have to leave it with him. But this text, this text is Christ's way of reminding us we're the last who have been made first. And in that rejoice. Don't compare yourself with others. Don't get an ego over your sacrifice. <laughs> Live in the grace of God. Let's pray.